This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Emma Rice, who is the director of Wuthering Heights at Berkeley Rep November 18th through January 1st, and it's co-production with the National Theater, Wise Children, which is her company, Bristol Old Vic, and the York Theater. Emma Rice has been at Berkeley Rep previously with Brief Encounter, The Wild Bride, 946, which is the story of Adolfo Tips. Let's start with Wuthering Heights. I just saw an interview that was written by Lily Janiak of the San Francisco Chronicle, and she said that for her, Wuthering Heights, particularly Kathy on the Moors, reminded her of what life was like alone during the pandemic. So let me bring that back to you. What is the relationship between choosing Wuthering Heights and life during the lockdown? Well, what a marvelous question. Well, there was originally no link because I planned and wrote this production pre-pandemic and it was scheduled to um, go into rehearsal during the pandemic and was like many theatre shows cancelled and reprogrammed and cancelled and reprogrammed and eventually happened. But it did change. Pre-pandemic, I was rather gothically attracted to it. I was attracted to its darkness which I still am. And we designed a a show that was quite heavy to represent really the heaviness of the characters. But we took the design out of its model box after the pandemic and thought, my goodness, we can't do this. You know, life has been tough enough. And actually I, I, I flipped it and I thought this has to be about freedom. This has to be about openness. So we redesigned it. It's definitely been reworked with a much lighter feel to it because I don't know how you feel and your listeners feel, but, you know, the pandemic was enough isolation and enough darkness and reflection. And I really wanted this piece, yes, to hold all the important issues and dark issues held within the novel, but to also give some joy and some hope. So the palette changed during the pandemic. Well, then let's go back a little bit to the origins of the show. Uh, I spoke to you about 946. That was 2017. And after that, uh, Wise Children, I guess, was created. And then you began working on Wuthering Heights. What brought you to Bronte at that point? Bronte is a big part of the British culture. So uh, you, you can't sort of grow up without knowing about Bronte. And I grew up in the Midlands. So right, if you put a pin in the middle of the UK, that's where I grew up. And that did mean that we used to go on holidays up to the north, which is an amazing landscape. And I remember as a child um, being taken on a long walk. And of course, all children hate long walks. And my mum saying, this is the building that Wuthering Heights was based on. And I can remember being very disappointed and saying, but it's an old ruin in the middle of nowhere and I'm cold and I'm wet. And my mum said, just you wait. One day you'll be very excited that you've been to Wuthering Heights. And she was right because I read it as a teenager and... And I loved it, but I loved it for all those teenage reasons. You know, Emily Bronte was 23 when she wrote it. So it speaks very powerfully to young people. It spoke about fear, about loss, about being entrapped um, and had this very gothic 
feeling that a ghost might wander the the earth for 20 years in search of of peace. Um, and I'd had a bereavement as a child. So I, I really responded to the, the gothic notion of ghosts. Not literally. I, I knew that there weren't ghosts, but but I did think every night, as young people often do, about death and mortality and their secret griefs. So I'd loved it as a teenager, but then I forgot it and I didn't think about it for many years until 2016. So just before we last talked. And in 2016, the migrant crisis, which still continues to this day in the UK, but the jungle had happened, which was the camp, the migrant camp that was happening in Calais, where many, many different communities of migrants were, were almost creating a temporary city. And there was great panic about this in England and the UK. And of the many panics that were happening, there was a discussion about how many child migrants, unaccompanied children, we would take into the country. And I can remember raging at the radio in the understanding that these are very complicated issues, but thinking, if we can't take in the most vulnerable children on the planet, the children that are alone, out of their communities, unaccompanied, then we have no right to be fearful in 20 years' time about what they might want to do to us or indeed do. And it was at that moment I went, wait a minute, wasn't Heathcliff an unaccompanied child refugee? So I ran to the bookshelf. I took down my copy of Wuthering Heights that had been left alone since I was a young woman. And indeed he was. He was found on the Liverpool docks, dark-skinned, dark-haired, speaking a foreign language, and was taken in and treated so unkindly that actually it's a revenge tragedy, is that it shows what happens if you don't treat people with care and compassion. And I wrote the words, be careful what you seed. And that really is at the heart of this telling. It's become many other things, but that was what drew me to it, was looking at how we treat others. When I first saw that it was Wuthering Heights, I kept thinking, okay, this kind of fits in with what we've seen in the past, adaptations of films or the original versions in books of Brief Encounter or The Red Shoes. But then I thought, yeah, well, Wuthering Heights, Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon, and that's a romance. But your feeling is that the real Wuthering Heights is not a romance. No. In fact, I'd go, I'd be stronger than that. It's, it's, it's so unromantic, Wuthering Heights. Now, it is not without love and it is not without hope but it is almost entirely devoid of romance because it's such a brutal world. And in fact, the end is so hard fought for, you know, I mean, I, I cry every time I watch it, but you know, these people are, are victims of society and the way that they're treated. Catherine as well, who as a woman is not a, doesn't have her own wealth, her own agency. She clearly has mental health issues. So these two people, Heathcliff and Cathy, are completely intoxicatingly codependent, but romantic. They are not. I, I'm very invested in them. But oh my goodness, if they were my friends, I'd say, take a break, you two. <laughs> Emma Rice. Okay, so now you get the idea that you're going to do Wuthering Heights. You pull the book off the shelf. At that point, do you go back and find a copy of the film? Or do you decide for yourself, no, I am not going to look at that film again now? I did not look at any of the film versions. And I don't think I ever have seen the film, actually. I, I've seen most things, but I don't think I've ever seen an adaptation. But they don't help me, really. I, I, I like to have my own 
pure relationship with a story. So now I didn't watch the other film versions because no good can come of it. That's what I always say. I either love it and then why would you replace it or I don't like it and then I, I feel negative. So I try and I try and keep my response very instinctive and very personal. At that point, you're looking at a very big book and you're looking at how to translate it to the stage. Do you kind of just go to your computer and start writing Do you start with the conception of how you're going to present this in a more general sense? How does Emma Rice work at that point? Well, it's the opposite of my computer. I I get really big sheets of paper that I put on the floor and sellotape them together. And I draw the whole shape of the story. And I do it from memory. I don't have the book open. I I work really instinctively. The the, The shape of the story and in it, I, I plug in what I think the best bits are. And I always think you, you have to remember what the best bits are because they're the ones that are going to be your guiding lights. But that's what I do is I, I draw almost like a river. What's this, the shape of this piece of theatre going to be like? What matters to me? And then I plug in um, where I think there might be songs or where there might be problems. I have lots of post-it notes. So it's a very interactive map. And then... When I've finished that, I I kind of know what happens next, what scenes are. And then I dive into it. Really, I don't work from the beginning to the end. I work on the bits that I have a real instinctive knowledge and flair of. So in fact, I started from the middle in Wuthering Heights. There's an amazing scene in the center of Wuthering Heights, which is when Cathy is dying. And she and Heathcliff have an enormous scene, which is so so amazingly described by Bronte it's very physical and they do not let each other off the hook they punish each other right to the end they talk about their deepest angers and I thought I wanted this to be like two gods I wanted it be to be like gods shaking the planets and the skies and and using the moors as a bouncing pad so I wrote that scene first and then I worked outwards from that and I also made some big decisions for those people that love and know the book, one of the narrators is Nellie Dean. And I just thought she's too, I love her, but she's too domestic. And I wanted this piece to feel epic. So I cut Nellie Dean and I decided that the narrator would be the Moors, the Yorkshire Moors, which would give it its its Greek scale, but also give the landscape its important place in this piece. So I made some big decisions like that as well. So I'm on big sheets of paper with big pens in my hand and post-it notes, making almost a picture of the whole shape. One of my questions was, how does the Moors become a chorus? But you just explained it. At that point, you realize that they're going to be singing then, right? Yes. Because why would you make a piece of theater that didn't have singing and dancing in it? Yes, that's the truth. But also I was very excited by and not seeing this as a romance, but seeing it as a tragedy. I think it's a revenge tragedy, that it's Heathcliff's revenge on how the world has treated him. So I, I sort of loosely laid the structure of a Greek tragedy over the top of Wuthering Heights and then really enjoyed when would the chorus numbers be there? When would the chorus have something to say or an opinion about what's happened? So I sliced that through and that became a, a place to to put some of that music and dance that I love so much in my work. And puppets as well. Yes. Again, I'm, I'm addicted to puppets, but that's because I, I don't ever wish to put children on stage. So you have to, and I, and I can't afford to put dogs on stage. So 
you have to find some way of doing it and puppets are great. They're no fuss. <laughs> they turn up every day and they do the job really well. At that point when you were working on this, um, were you still doing knee-high? Had Wise Children come into existence by then? This was very much a Wise Children project. So yes, this was this was from the really the beginning of um, starting Wise Children. Projects usually take about three years to for me to write and produce. Um, so yes, it was right at the beginning. I thought this is going to be my big third show, which is what it is, or is it my fourth? So um, yeah, t- it took a few years and a pandemic, but here it is. Emma Rice, there's a certain point where you're going, okay, I've got this broad outline. I've filled in some of the gaps. I've write- written some of the dialogue. At what point do you bring in other people? And when you do that, how do you do that? Do you suddenly have a meeting and say, this is what I want to do and sit around a table? Oh, well, there's sometimes a table involved, but it's usually got wine and food on it. I try and work instinctively with everybody. I've never done a reading of a script in my entire career. So we don't do that. People obviously read, but I think it's quite a private thing reading. But with my musician, for example, I wrote a collection of poetry inspired by the by the Moors. I went and visited the Yorkshire Moors and I thought I'd do get down to some hard work, but I didn't. I went for long walks and wrote some poetry. And then we talked a lot about how how we wanted it to feel, what the themes were. And I, I can remember saying I, I we don't want everything to be sung, but on the other hand, choral speaking is tedious. And that was when my brilliant composer, Ian Ross, said, what if it's almost in harmony speaking? So it's something that I've never heard before. There's a lot of speaking which is musical in its intonation, but still has got the natural form of speech. And it's almost religious. It's almost like church services. It's impossible to describe, but that was really his response to my writing. And again, with my designer, we talk through themes really in the feel. She knows that I like a playground rather than anything too literal. So we just talk around and we did all go up to the auction moors and spend some time up there because it's a very unique part of the planet. And it felt like we all needed to find our own inspirations. So there's no simple answer to it. You know, I've, I've worked with many of my team for many years and we, we talk about what matters to us and I trust them. How far along was the show at the moment that everything shut down and you realized that it would have to be put on hold? Oh, it was scheduled. So I think we went into lockdown in March. Yes. And I think we were due to go into rehearsals in August. So for at first, like all of us, we thought it was going to be a few weeks. I thought nothing would happen. I thought it would all get back on track. But it was postponed several times. But we I'd written it. It was designed. We were pretty much ready to go into rehearsals. And at that point, you had to put it aside and theater shut down. How quickly did you kind of realize we have to do something different? We have to film things. We have to create new shows. How did that come? I, I wish I could sound like I was clever and organized but like all of us we every day was a was a struggle and a struggle to find purpose and I suppose in that struggle lots of things were happening personally but at home my my partner is a sound designer and 
things he started saying is, Emma, we should try and keep in touch with our friends. And he said, we need to keep in touch with our our team members, our extended family, but also our audience. So we started doing some live podcasts. We started doing a series of podcasts, first of all, recording. And I really think it was to keep us sane. I was in, um, I sort of almost did it as a living archive of everybody that I've worked with over 30 years. I think we ended up doing 30 episodes of, of interviews with um, collaborators. And he said, oh, I think I can film you live. And we did some live podcasts with film. And then from that, he started saying, I think we can live broadcast. And so there was never a day when we thought we're going to change, turn this round. But we did as a company, we skilled up. My stage managers learned how to hold cameras. I learned how to call a, a live mix. My sound designer became a vision mixer. And we suddenly found ourselves at the at the front of the industry, live broadcasting theatre shows in the middle of the pandemic. We went into bubbles. We really looked after each other's health. And we did it all on a shoestring. We were ordering everything from Amazon. Um, we, we did it for a fraction of the cost, but to great acclaim. And, and that moment has passed in many ways, but it was amazing. It kept, I keep coming back to that word purpose. Wise children found purpose and we kept our community. We kept our team together. We kept our team employed and we kept everybody feeling like there was something to keep going for. We did really well, but I cannot pretend it was easy, and I cannot pretend that we didn't have some very, very dark days. Emma Rice, the shows that you worked on were Baghdad Cafe, Mallory Towers, and The Flying Lovers of Vitebsk. These were new shows created during the pandemic then? No, they were all existing shows. And we remounted them, recast them, and redirected them for live broadcast. And they were on BBC. Uh, they were on different. They were on different. We did. We had our own um, Wise Children TV. <laughs> we actually set up our own channel. I, you're probably speaking to the wrong person here. I'm. I'm desperately racking my brain, but I think we set up our own channel. We were working with a company in the Netherlands called Ticket Co. And yeah, we live broadcast. How did it feel for you, having done so much stage work, to suddenly be working in a different medium? Well, I was dragged kicking and screaming because I've never really wanted to do film and TV. The things I love in my life are the the human interaction, the fact that things can change. You know, if you had a bad night in the theatre, you just have a great night the next night. There's a It's a living, breathing entity and community. So I felt that film and TV wouldn't suit me. But in fact, the live broadcast, I think it would have been very different if we were capturing it. Even that word sort of sends shudders. But because it was live, it was one of the most thrilling things I've done, particularly those first few shows. We were really working as a team. There was amazing adrenaline as I say, from the cameras through to the cast, through to the backstage, through to the people who were manning Twitter. We had our team talking to Twitter to make sure that people could get, you know, we knew whether Mrs. Morris in, you know, in Yorkshire could get online. We were so actively engaging with our audience. It was absolutely thrilling. You know, when we landed a sequence of edits live, you know, going from camera to camera, I mean, it was like scoring a goal. So in many ways, I, I captured the thrill of theatre, but even more so because I was part of it. Normally I'm sitting back taking notes when people are doing the show, but this way I was in headphones, 
speaking to people. It was it was intoxicating. And and I think it was intoxicating for all the reasons I said, but if you add into that that we had been so frightened, so isolated, and so adrift that if you added into that the 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 headiness of working as a team again it, it was really special and probably unrepeatable how was dealing with being in a bubble and doing that i mean that meant for weeks it was just a whole bunch of you desperately staying away from everyone else it was probably two weeks because it was only live broadcast we didn't have to do a long run maybe a little bit more because we isolated before it was worth it. I mean, that's all I can say is we'd been uh, apart for so long. We were absolutely so rigorous. We, you know, we had no people came in in cars. They had separate accommodation. We had their food delivered. The backstage team didn't mix with the onstage team. In fact, we used to have drinks at the end of the night, a bit isolated so that we didn't um, get close to the actors. I just think it mattered for that for that period it really really mattered and i think it mattered to our audience that we were trying and it certainly mattered to us as i say i i sort of we still went home alone and we were still isolating so we didn't have any sort of socializing that wasn't isolated but oh my goodness the the fact that we were all still there and that we didn't get sick at that point you know we were frightened we were really frightened of hurting people we loved. So the fact that we did all of that without anybody getting COVID felt, felt such an achievement. These productions have been recorded, or many of them have, some of them have, I would guess. Are they available anyway? Will they be available anywhere? Yes, they are. Go to our website, wisechildren.com, and that will tell you where to go to see things. Wuthering Heights is with Sky at the moment, so that one you'd have to watch via Sky, and some of them are on our website. But yes, we recorded the live captures and have made films of all of them. Then I would assume going forward you're going to keep doing that. We are certainly going to keep live broadcasting shows because it's so good for access. My mum is now in her 80s. She can't travel to London to see my work. So, you know, on a really personal level, my mum still gets to see the work. I think it's amazing for access and and cost. You know, some people can't travel to the theatre or afford tickets. And we're able to keep reaching a huge audience who for all sorts of reasons may not be able to make it to the theatre, COVID being only one. So yeah, I think we've really, we really enjoy it. It's really expanded our process and our team. And it's definitely, definitely helped our audience. Emma Rice, I'd like to slightly switch gears a little bit here. A lot of people use theatre for activism and some people do it to a greater degree, to a lesser degree. For you, do you see any political element that's straightforward or overt, or are you always working to kind of not quite get there, but make people think? I guess I'm answering your question for you. I think you are. No, I'm not political with a capital P. I, I'm not certain enough. You know, I, 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 I exist in all sorts of doubts, always. And I think that's really where my creative energy is. So I choose stories that are personal. I always say I have the itch. It's the stories that tap me on the shoulder. And then I, I feel like a detective. I have to work out why, why am I thinking of that story? Why do I want to tell it? And I think that becomes political with a small p. You know, they're my own angers or fears or 
or rages come to the surface. So I think the work is political, but that isn't where it starts. It's it's personal and nuanced. You know, it's certainly not party political. I, I, I explore my own relationship to the planet through the work. And I hope that, that becomes universal. Well, you just said stories that tap me on the shoulder. And at that point, you pull down the book of Wuthering Heights. But I'm curious, how many of those stories, when you that tap you, you work on it and finally go, I can't do it? Or do you just keep doing it until you can? Almost every story that's tapped me on the shoulder I've, I've created, I can't think of a single one that I haven't. They're always right. It's your instinct. The, the shows that don't get made are the ones that people have suggested to me or I've thought might be clever. And that always goes wrong because I'm not very clever. I I'm, don't really work very well. So the famous one is everybody kept saying when I was at Nehi that we should do The Tempest. Oh, no, we shouldn't. We tried really hard, but we shouldn't. It, was, it didn't tap me on the shoulder. It didn't speak to me. But if every story that comes to me, I've made because it's it's... I didn't choose it, but it's why I'm on the planet. So at the point where you pulled down the book and said, this is what I'm going to do, you knew that was what you were going to do, that that was going to be in a um, Wise Children production. Yes, I think I do. I think I do. I think, I mean, again, as a detective, you if I'd pulled it down and I'd misremembered it, then that would have been a fair, that wouldn't have been an anecdote. But I think these stories that matter it's really interesting. They just reveal themselves to you in layers, more and more layers. And, and they reveal myself to myself, if that makes sense. They surprise me because it's not my mind working. It's, it's my, my subconscious. Which was the one that surprised you the most then? Which you kind of said, really? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got a few answers to that. So one, I think American audiences probably won't have a reference for, but I did a version of Steptoe and Son once which was a sitcom. Now, I think you did have an American version of it. It was about a very poor father and son. He was a rag and bone man. And it was a sitcom and it, it didn't do very well. The, the long and short of it is people who loved Steptoe and Son found my version too arty and people who liked my work could not understand why I was doing a version of a sitcom. <laughs> so not a huge success but I loved it and the reason and I realized I was feeling trapped I was actually feeling trapped at, at knee high and in myself and I and yet loved the very thing that was entrapping me and it was about I, I realized that Steptoe was about being trapped about family and everything it brings to your life but also everything that it, it crushes and I really wanted to explore that so that's an example of it was a surprise. It was a it was a real surprise, and it surprised everybody else. And I loved it and love it to this day. And I'm working on one at the moment that's a surprise to me, which is I'm currently working on a version of Bluebeard, which I thought I would never do because it, it seems to revolve around killing women, of which is something I have no interest in. But on further examination of the itch, I'm discovering that it's much more about the life force of women. And that's all I'll tell you. But that was a surprise to me. And it's revealing itself in a rather vivid, funny and angry form. There was knee high, there's wise children. What is the difference? Does knee high still exist? Um, knee high doesn't exist. It, it folded last year. I mean, the difference is wise children is my company. I started it. 
I inherited knee high and I was, I felt like I held the baton, you know, it was an amazing company. But I thought it was time, especially after the Globe, because I left knee high to go to the Globe and it was, we don't need to go into that, but it was fairly short lived and dramatic. I was only artistic director for two years, having sort of fallen out with the board. And I think I came out of that and I thought, well, I can't go backwards. I mean, I'll a bit, my heart will always be with knee high, but I thought I have to, this is a moment to just be me and be Emma Rice. And that's when the Wise Children was, was born. So that's the difference is it, it's my company. And did you bring people from knee high to Wise Children then? Of course I did. Life is a delicious sausage there's no lines anywhere. There's just delicious new combinations. So yes, lots of people have come with me from the globe and from Nehi and will continue to. You know, I, I feel that it's it's sort of creating a home that people can come and stay in when they need it and when they want to. The two shows you worked on live streamed, Baghdad Cafe and Mallory Towers, you said that those were already pre-produced you'd already created them years earlier first of all it wasn't Mallory Towers I think the ones that we that we live broadcast were Baghdad Cafe which I actually did create in response to the pandemic so that was newly created we did the Flying Lovers of Vitebsk which was the show about Mark and Bella Chagall and that had been pre-produced and toured and we got that company back together and we also did Romantics Anonymous which was a musical a new musical which in fact had been produced and performed in Bristol and was about to go on American tour before the pandemic. So that was a real chance to capture that production because it's never returned. Um, So every show has got a slightly different story. Emma Rice, I read a review of Wuthering Heights and I haven't seen the show yet, but there's a blackboard where the deaths (laughs) are counted up. There's lots of small blackboards and we write on in chalk, we write down the names of everybody as they die to help the audience because it's a very complicated book. There's a lot of difficult names. So at the very beginning, I say, this is very complicated, but don't worry. So yes, we do write up the names. We chalk up the names of the dead. The review also complimented the show for making it very clear that despite all the complex things that happen inside the show that the audience can still understand it. It sounds to me like you really worked hard at that one. Oh, I did. You know, theatre can be many, many, many things, but it has to be something that people can understand. I just don't believe, you know, sometimes we've all been to those shows where you think, I don't quite get this. It must be so brilliant that I'm not clever enough to get it. And Shakespeare sometimes makes you feel like that. I don't want anybody to ever watch a show of mine and not be able to understand what's happening. And then, of course, the layers can go deeper and deeper and you can have all sorts of nuance, but I don't think it should be actually understanding what's happening. So, yeah, we worked really hard to make sure these complicated plot and complicated names were really easily understandable because that's when audiences can enjoy it, relax, and then really experience the deeper themes as well. Do you actually put on a rehearsal and bring in people and say, okay, do you understand this? Because at that point, you're way too close (laughs) to the show. Um, I don't. I do have people in and out who I listen to, but you know what? I might... If I've got a superpower, it's that I've got sort of a child's eye. I'm really good at knowing what's... I don't get too close when it comes to what's simply told. 
I think I'm really good at it. I still look at it and think, no, my seven-year-old self would not know what's happening. <laughs> so, you know, I keep a really strong eye on it and I'm very good at saying I don't understand this. I need to make this clearer. Uh, you've mentioned several shows. How many shows are you working on right now in various stages of development? Ooh, one, two, three, four, four. I'm going to go for. There might be more. I've probably got six that are sort of hanging, but four that are in active development. That means that since you don't abandon projects, all of them will come to fruition at some point. Yeah, the two that are hanging, I'm not saying specifically, but if they're hanging, there might be a reason for that. Um, but yes, I should think they will. It's very, very rare that I don't make a show that I want to make. How many are in the back of your mind where you've gotten the tap on your shoulder and you're kind of brushing it off saying, later, later? <laughs> I've got a few of those. And of course, th there's always rights issues as well. So sometimes things tap me on the shoulder and then we have to try and get the rights to, to them. Life looks after me. It's all fine. The right shows land at the right time. And I'm uh, sometimes shows accelerate into pole position you know and you suddenly go there's a gap and I could do this one now and other shows are a little bit complicated and then they land at a time when you understand them even more so I, I don't stress too much about it as long as I've got plenty going on things tend to land at the right time. You've been listening to an interview with Emma Rice her show Wuthering Heights is at Berkeley Rep November 18th to January 1st and to see all these other shows or to find out where they are, what's the name of the website to go to? Wisechildren.com. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>